Hello and welcome to Critical Theory in Context, the podcast of the Center for Social Critique in Berlin. My name is Rahel Jägi. I'm very pleased to welcome you to today's special episode, introducing our this year's Benjamin Chair, Sally Hesslinger. Sally Hesslinger is Professor for Philosophy at the MIT, and in June this year, she will be delivering the Benjamin Lectures, which carry the title Agents of Possibility, the Complexity of Social Change. Being an active feminist and anti-racist herself, Sally's work has for a long time been in conversation with social movements. So together with Robin Celikates, I conducted the following interview with Sally to find out more about her activist background and about the way she understands the relationship of her social theory to social movements and struggles. And with that, we dive into today's episode with Sally Hesslinger about her ongoing conversation with social movements and the relationship of social theory to activist practice. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let us start with a little bit of your personal story and political involvement. How did you become interested in political activism and social movements? What kind of social movements or campaigns have been most important or even formative for your own political socialization? Okay, so so um, when when I was in college, I really didn't understand feminism and I didn't really have a sense of myself as anything other than free and autonomous and powerful. But my brother kept telling me, oh, just you wait, just you wait. And then a um, series of events occurred uh, and I was assaulted and suddenly the reality hit. And uh, and it was a, a just an incredible lightning bolt to my spine, right? That That, oh my God, now I understand why he kept saying that. And I was transformed quite quickly. And I became involved in feminist activism of a variety of kinds. I was um, involved in Title IX, which is in the United States. It's the federal legislation that guarantees um, equality. Well, it doesn't guarantee anything, obviously, but it but it requires um, equality uh, for women, uh, underrepresented minorities, a variety of kinds in education. And I became quite involved in that. And among those guarantees um, are uh, sort of protection against sexual harassment. And this was in the late 70s, and sexual harassment was quite a new idea. And one of my glory moments was I was working at the University of California, Berkeley, to promote sexual ha harassment um, protections and The the and we had been demonstrating, we had been working on this for some time, a core group of us. And the, the university lawyers asked to meet us. And we were just a bunch of random grad students, right? We didn't know that much about the law. And a friend said, I think Catherine McKinnon isn't visiting at Stanford this year. Maybe we should call her and see if she'll join us. And so, and we were all going, really? Do you think she would? 
And we called her and she met with us with the with the university lawyers um, to talk about sexual harassment and the requirements of sexual harassment law. So it was like, yes, it's a win. <laughs> you know, it was. Um, and so that was one of the things that I was involved in. I was in the early days of the anti-pornography movement. Um, uh, pornography teaches lies about women. You know, I was on the streets sort of doing that. And then, um, but in graduate school, I was very primarily involved in doing analytic metaphysics. I was not doing any social political philosophy. And I really held these two parts of my life separate because there were no courses in feminist philosophy or feminist theory or any of that um, at the time. And so I would organize reading groups and I would organize uh, I had a couple of close friends who were also activists, and we would organize demonstrations and such. But what do you read in those reading groups? Oh, we read all the very, you know, Marilyn Fry and early. Um, so we read liberal feminists, but more often we were reading socialist feminists and some some little bits and pieces of critical theory. Um, we were reading, you know, McKinnon. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of it was was you know the early you know, red stockings and and movement work um, from you know the activists doing 1970s activism um, is what we were you know there are lots of pamphlets and books and such like that. Um, and so oh and. Yes, feminist anthropology was kind of big for us. Um, Sherry Ortner's work and and some others. So we then, um, so I continued on and got a job. My first job was one that I was hired in part to teach in the Women's Studies program because Women's Studies program started being created. And I'd never taken a course in Women's Studies. All I had was my 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 own self-education and the education of my activist uh, friends. And, but it was difficult when I first went to Irvine where I was uh, hired, uh, the, the director of women's studies um, met me after I was on campus and she said, you know, we're so glad to have you. Your syllabus looks great. It's really wonderful. But I have one question for you why are you in the philosophy department? <laughs> and I said, well, I have a PhD in philosophy. I do philosophy. Um, but she couldn't really understand why that just didn't compute, given the history of analytic philosophy. There was, um, it was pretty bad for women, and there was no feminism uh, uh, in any substantial sense. I mean, there were, as I said, Marilyn Fry and Alison Jagger and, and um, some of the other early feminists Uh, but I said, well, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. So I continued to work on uh, uh, feminism, mainly in my activist side and not in my research, um, in teaching and demonstrating. Um, it was a little hard because for a while I was moving a lot. And so finding a community of activists that I was connected to was a little bit difficult. We worked a lot on human rights issues And especially in Southern California, there are a lot of issues about immigrant rights. Um, and then I moved a couple more times and, and was asked to uh, write something for a book that was edited by Louise Anthony 
and um, Charlotte Witt uh, on on feminist philosophy. And I said, well, I don't do feminist philosophy. And they said, oh, yes, you do. And I said, well, I don't know what I would write. And they said, well, you know a lot of feminist theory and you know how to do philosophy, so just get working on it. And so I wrote a paper on Catherine McKinnon's work, uh, the paper Being Objective and Being Objectified, that was my first paper in, in, in feminist philosophy, and I never looked back. It was just from there on. Um, so other things that have been important to me in addition to feminism, of course, has been um, anti-racist work. And I have been involved in a number of different efforts to promote you know, anti-racist efforts. And in my life, um, there were uh, important decisions in my life about how to um, how to engage and empower um, the Black community in insofar as I'm not really a member of that community. How do you do that? What does that involve? And when are you welcome? When are you not welcome? So there's been a long history of the last several decades of really trying to be a good ally and work together with the Black community um, while also staying on the margins of those efforts. Um, and I think that's been an, a very deep learning experience for me, um, how to build coalitions, both in, in philosophy and doing theory and in activism. I've tried to build coalitions between um, groups working on, on women's rights and LGBTQ rights and um, you know, racial liberation. And it's it's been tricky. Um but it's something that I very deeply believe in um, and and raise my children to believe in. And so that's been very meaningful to me. Can you speak a bit more maybe about the, this relation between, let's say, I, I just call it now for the sake of brevity, campus politics and the kind of inner academic side of the activism and um, let's say the activism of communities outside of the university because there's this question of bridging these multiple gaps, not just between these different kinds of activism, um, let's say feminist and anti-racist, but I, I'm sure also because, uh, between, let's say, more kind of academic and campus-based activism and the one that, um, you know, happens in other in other places in society. So I would be very interested in how you experience that relation and the tensions that go, I'm sure, along with it. Yes. Well, I... I... I had thought at certain points after I got my PhD and I went to Irvine that I was going to quit my job. There were many times I thought I was going to quit my job as an academic philosopher and, and become an activist. Um, uh, and I was involved in issues, especially about violence against women um, and pornography and, uh, and reproductive rights, those sorts of issues. And I would go into community organizations And one of the challenges I had was that I, I was much more reluctant than other people in the organizations to act without having a plan and without having an analysis of the analysis of the situation. And I was, <clears throat> people would laugh at me because they would say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I'd say, 
I think we need to have a reading group about this first. And they would laugh at me because they would always say, oh, yeah, right. You know, you always need. And even in context where they didn't know that what my academic background was, I, I developed this reputation of being kind of cautious and uncertain about what steps to take as a kind of as an activist. And that was something that I think led me to realize that I'm not really the best activist leader. I'm good at showing up. I'm good at being committed. I'm good at building networks and connections, but deciding what needs to be done and planning how to do it I'm not that good at that, right? So, um, in this in this wonderful book um, by by Jane Mansbridge and Alden Morris, um, it's called Oppositional Consciousness and uh, the Subjective Roots of Social Protest. And one of the things that really resonated with me when um, and I've drawn on it a bit in my work is that in when she's talking about um, social movements and oppositional consciousness. She says there are various things that are really needed in order for this subjective resistance, you know, saying, oh, this, I can't take this. This is bad. I'm not going to do this anymore. What it takes to get from that to an oppositional consciousness and then to organizing. And she said in the organizing, it takes the sort of activist creative imagination. And and it's so interesting because it was exactly that that I felt like I didn't have personally I didn't have that sense of, oh, we could do this and that would work. And and all we have to do is this and this to do it. And I would go, really? Really? That's going to work? Or all you have to do is that and then it'll happen? And, and, so, um, and so my involvement in movements and also my involvement with the Black community, I feel has been more... Uh, a sense of commitment and willingness to do the grunt work, willingness to sweep the floor, willingness to do the dishes, willingness to um, make the posters and and those sorts of things. Um, And learning from those who have this creative sensitivity to the kind of the moment, um, how to go forward. And yeah, sometimes I have input and whatever, whatever. Um, and then in context where there's more of a coalition, I think I'm a good coalition member um, where, where there's different organizations that are coming together and each trying to plan something together where all the different voices need to be heard. Um, and that, that might be because I, you know, my teaching background or or some other background that I've had in in trying to amplify everybody's voices. I can do well in those sorts of situations, Um, but I'm not the most, I'm not the best activist really. And so I think that's what kept me more in the academy and doing, doing activism in the academy where I was more of a leader in that setting, where in the, in the community, I was more of a, a support staff, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does totally make sense. And it's a really wonderful description of those things somewhat inform each other. And I love being there. I love especially one of the things that was, I love doing that, you know, because someone's got to do the grunt work. Someone has got to do 
the cleaning up and the shopping and the making the meal and sweeping the floor. And, 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 you know, someone has to do that. And I love being the person who does that. I just, it's, it's meaningful to me that I don't always have to bring my mind that I can bring my passion and my love and my commitment at this, at this level. I also very often had this experience that once you are in an activist group, you start to object to the kind of, let's say, easy solutions. You always think it's much more complicated, which is probably what led you to suggesting reading groups all the time, right? But it also works the other way around. When in a philosophical workshop, one misses the political impact. So has activism sometimes pushed you towards philosophy and then the other way around? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's exactly right. So I get, I always have questions and concerns and I want an analysis. Okay, so so what exactly is the issue and how exactly are we going? To, and this is what I do now is I spend a lot of time doing this diagnostic work of trying to figure out what the what the issue is and where the leverage points are, because that was always something that I found very difficult in the activist context that I was in. And I learned very quickly, of course, that, you know, as an activist, most of the stuff you do is not going to make any difference at all um, or very little difference. But that doesn't stop you. You don't just say, okay, now we're not going to do anything. Then we're just going to give up. Um, it's okay not to have it be successful. It's okay to, to just bring people together and, and form that solidarity and provide that network and support for people without feeling as though, okay, we're going to topple the, the power or we're going to make a difference in whether this legislation is passed. How can theory then still make a difference for political practice? I would say the work you're doing should somehow inform political practice as much as it learns from it. And in some way, you seem to try to bring your two lives together, but also not to merge them totally when you say that you are happy with sweeping the floor. But on the other hand, your theoretical work obviously matters and should matter, not only in academia. What difference then does it make that people are doing critical theory? Or, I mean, does it make any difference? Well, part of it is, I think, it's, I feel as though you know, my work is quite informed by the, the work on the ground um, and but is in conversation with it. So I think there were times when there was an emphasis on sort of legal reform. So in the context of sexual harassment, there was a strategy to have legal reform and policy that would change things. But of course you need more than that, right? Because, because the people in power are going to protect the others who are in power and they're not, you know, sexual harassment law, as we know, and, you know, has not been entirely successful in, you know, think of the Me Too movement, right? This is, this is decades after sexual harassment laws were passed. And so, and so I do think that there were efforts to change culture, right? So what is the, the culture of of sexual objectification and how does that culture work? But I do think, and I think that activists have been trying for some time, you know, part of what a march does is 
try to do consciousness raising about these issues. Take back the night marches, right? I don't know if you have them in, in Europe, but they were something that I was very involved in. Um, what is it to have women walk down the street at night in in ma- en masse in a collective and to feel safe because we're there together, you know, and we're marching? I mean, this changes the individuals who are involved but I, I have worried over time that it doesn't have the kind of broad impact that is needed in order to have you know, the end of sexual objectification. And so part of my work has been to think about how do you bring together the significance of law and the significance of the economy and the significance of culture and the significance of all of these various components of society to think about social change more holistically so that it's going to have to address all of these many things um, and, and not just think that you can change it all by changing the law or change it all by changing the economy or, or things like that, because more is needed the, because of the ways that these these different dimensions are integrated. Um, so that's that's something that I'm I've been learning. And one of the places, and and you can cut this out of the transcript if you want, but one of the things I've been doing the last several years is working with this program at MIT that tries to address global poverty. And I think that it would be great if it also tried to address issues more domestically. But in the way that the program does it is through co-design. So you and the re, and you'll see why this is kind of relevant in a second. So the you go into a community and you ask them, you know, to define some of the problems they have. Okay, so that they just have very vague understandings, and then they develop together. A, a better understanding of the problem, and then you you enable them to re, rethink the resources that are available to them, rethink, um, think outside the box in terms of what would be a solution, and then you give them skills for designing and implementing the solution. And what's so interesting about it is that it's about changing practices, And in changing practices, you change relationships between the individuals who are there. You change a different, you change their relationship with the material environment. You can give them an opportunity to to make money, um, to support themselves so that they're not dependent on others. And so there's this incredibly um, powerful combination of of changes that can happen all the way from cognitively how people think about themselves, the skills they have, how they think about their environment, how they think about their relationships with each other, what their position in the economy is. And all of this can happen kind of in a, in a holistic sort of way. And so I think of this as a, a small scale um, sort of uh, proof of concept or sort of a, a, a test case. And it seems to me that there are a lot of places in the in the Boston community, for example, where people are trying to do this. So um, I'm especially interested 
these days in period poverty, what's called period poverty, uh, where people, where young women especially um, can't afford menstrual products and the impact on this, on them because of this. And this is part of what we're working on in Kenya as well. Um, because menstrual shame is pretty much globally prevalent, right? There's almost nowhere where are people comfortable talking about their menstrual periods. Almost nowhere um, can do, do women feel anything other than shame about it. And so there, there are some programs here in the Boston area that um, are trying to address this as well as the, the group in Kenya. And so what we're doing is building a kind of network of people who, and, and you know, the, the young women are creating apps and we're giving them um, resources for thinking about uh, how to prevent teenage pregnancy um, and these things by simple things like having a bracelet where you keep track of your cycle with beads right? So that you know the days when you may be most fertile, but it's a bracelet. Nobody can tell what it's for and you just know how to use it. You know what I mean? So, so these very on the ground practical solutions that you have the, those most directly affected are, are creating the solutions with materials that are available to them and not, you know, fancy, you know, drop it in and, and find the solution. So I'm not sure that this makes this really addresses your question, but for me, this idea that if you begin to change the practices, that changes relationships. It changes your not just to each other, but to and what we what we found too is that that um, women come into these groups and are often have skills that have not been recognized. And so when you sit down together in a group of men and women, and you're trying to have them design solutions to a problem, the women have really good ideas and they've got skills. And so the men are going, whoa, that's amazing. You could do that? And they go, yes, of course I could do that. And so then the relationship between them changes, right? And I, so this is, this is, this is something I'm really deeply invested in at the moment as a kind of on, on the ground effort. Now, of course it doesn't, change, you know, break down global capitalism. This is Critical Theory in Context. I am Rahel Yegi, and together with Robin Celicatis, I'm talking with Sally Hesslinger, this year's Benjamin Chair, about the relationship between social theory and activist practice. Sally Hesslinger is Ford Professor of Philosophy at the famous Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where she also teaches in the Women's and Gender Studies program. In her writings, Sally develops a contemporary critique of the structural injustices characteristic of today's society. In particular, she focuses on the efficacy of ideologies and the underpinnings of sexism and racism. Her reflections have been published in numerous essays, a selection of which appeared in 2012 under the title Resisting Reality, Social Construction and Social Critique. She has also co-authored the book What is Race? Four Philosophical Views, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2019. And she's currently preparing a book entitled Doing Justice to the Social. This year's Benjamin Lectures 
carry the title Agents of Possibility, the Complexity of Social Change. At the core of Sally's account is a complex and multi-layered understanding of societies and of the relationship between practices, structures, and systemic dynamics. It is this complex theoretical picture of social relations and its, its significance for activist practice that we return to now for the second part of our conversation. I'd like to follow up on what you, you've just said. The way you describe practical change as co-design, grounded in local communities and situated knowledge is really interesting. But I think it also brings up new questions. One of them would be the difference between changing individual behavior and changing a social structure. You said that we should change practices, even everyday practices. I wonder how this relates to changing social structures or even societies. So it's connected to the issues about changing the laws um, and how changing the laws doesn't fix things most of the time. It does can sometimes, but it doesn't. Unless there's a kind of more holistic uh, ability to change the practices in ways that are uh, also emancipatory. Because you can institute a law and there's no change in the practices or the change in the practices backfires or whatever. And so when you're thinking about structures at this very broad and more abstract level, I think trying to do that and hoping that it'll trickle down and change people's form of life is overly optimistic. I think you've got to start with opening up space in the form of life and having creative imagination and having different relationships with each other. And then there can be um, a broader and wider uh, change in the society. And, and you can see this um, happening. So some of the things that uh, we work on is a uh, formalization of informal sector workers. And so, you no know, waste pickers, Waste pickers in, in India and in Africa and in Latin America, they're the lowest of the low. They live in the dump. They live off the dump. Um, but they don't expect anything more than that, right? This is their form of, this is their life. Um, or 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 women minors. I mean, this is another place where women minors are sexually abused in, in horrifying ways. And just passing a bunch of, of laws about or or changing um you know forcing economic change in those circumstances isn't necessarily going to have an impact unless unless there are different ways of doing things on the ground and so this is where i think that we've got to do both but my commitment is to doing it in a community where you're You're empowering people through the changes of their practices to see how it's going to happen at the next level in a way that's going to work. Um, because, of course, coming in from the outside and saying, hey, I'm an American feminist and I'm going to tell you how to do the law or I'm going to tell you how to arrange your economy or something. It, it, it's not only paternalistic and imperialistic, but it doesn't work. And so but instead, if you. So, for example, there's a there are movements in um, uh, 
I think it was in Ghana, where what there's a huge issue about ownership of land and only men can own land. And then when uh, women are widowed, they're basically destitute because the land stays with the with the husband's family. Um, and and doing work on the ground and sort of thinking about how to understand land and how to understand ownership and how to how to rethink the practices um, that have been set up to foster this understanding of, well, no, it's the man who has to own the land, you know, because, you know, et cetera, et cetera, social norms, expectations, traditions, culture, um, changing that can have a tremendous effect where now they're passing laws that say that when a husband dies, you can't take the land away from the wife. Right. And this is tremendously empowering because it not only gives women who are widowed a new kind of power, you know, they're not destitute, but it gives them power in the relationship. Right. And then you can sort of move on from there. So so I I I'm now the other thing that's important is that once people begin to see that they're they're not stuck and a particular form of life, then they they have their critical capacities are enhanced and they can begin to see connections between the situation that they were in and their improved lives and situations of other people. And they can they there's compassion and there's identification and there's and there's commitment to seeing these kinds of changes happen more broadly. And yes, I do think that you get broader movements for social change, for democratic um, uh, control of various things, because once you see it happening in your immediate context and you see your own life being transformed, then that that opens up this possibility of imagining greater futures, better futures. So it's not immediately radical, but I think it has a much more sustainable radical potential. I think that's quite important because it also seems to suggest that, you know, that the theory or analysis does play a quite important role because whether you, you know, organize people on the ground to enable them to solve certain problems in this or that way depends on that analysis, depends on what you think the structural problems might be and how you might get at them from this more contextual approach. Yes. That's why some NGO initiatives are working in a maybe more superficial way, trying to solve the same problems, but don't really manage to address the underlying structural causes and others are more uh, maybe attuned to the structural constraints and try to change them in this way. So there's a lot of work um, around period poverty where people just get large donations from American corporations and dump them, basically dump the products and say, here, here, now you have product. And they and they 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 last for six months and then it's done and there's no change in this in the in the there's no change right you get girls go to school now and they for six months they're regular participants in school but then they run out of the product and then you know they don't go to school anymore um, or or there's no change in the relationships right and so part of what I think having the theory does is it says 
so on my view, sort of practices are the basis for the social relations, which are the basis for the structure. And then the structure has a dynamics that gives us the system. And so when you want change in the structure and in the system, the a really important place to start is to start in the practices because if they change, then the relations change and then the structure has to change because these new relationships are cut against the way the system has been working in the past. If you try to change it from the top and you say, okay, now we're going to force this change, but the practices are continuing to go, the change isn't sustainable. It's not lasting because people revert back to the practices that they were engaged in before. So I think theory has, and also changing the people. So, so this is one of the things that I think comes from my experience as well, is these moments where I not only had that that moment, that click where suddenly everything was diff- looked different, but that I was given an opportunity to act on that, act on the world differently, act in the world differently, act in relationship to others differently, because that's that's the heart and soul, I think, of of movement work um, is finding new ways of relating to each other and building on that and building that into something where it's very broad and collective. And then you can press forward together in that. So that's that's where I'm coming from. Let's once again return to the role of theory. You have famously said that we do not need a normative theory in order to know what to do. But what But then, in your review of Amir's book, you insisted that what we do need is a social theory. Again, I very much agree. But what exactly is then the role of this social theory? How does it help for the work on the ground to understand how the structure works or to understand how the system works? In your lectures, you're going to start from the idea that society is made by us, but at the same time, it seems to have a life of its own. Given this picture, the interesting question seems to be, how can change still be effective if the structures and systemic dynamics are not responsive to our attempts to change them, or at least not so easily responsive? Does it help for the work on the ground to draw the connection to the respective higher level issues that are maybe influencing the practices on the ground? Yeah, I mean, hard question, obviously, and, and deeply important. So I think one of, so one very simple way to think about structure, I think is a social structure is this. So there are a variety of different constraints on our agency. I can't fly, right? I, I've got a body, I've got a human body that constrains my agency. Um, I can't go without food and water for a certain length of time or I die. So that sets constraints on my agency. Um, the geographical situation constrains my agency, depending on if there's a body of water, I can't I can't walk across it, you know, things like that. So geography, my own body, biology, all of these constrain my agency. Um, there are other constraints on my agency that are, are part of the built environment, where if you think about the built environment, it's not just buildings, but institutions and those sorts of things. So social structures, I think of as, as the 
the kind of constraints on agency that are socially constituted. Those are the social structures broadly. This is just very broadly. So the first step is to see which ones are the social ones and which ones are the natural ones, or which ones are we can potentially overcome by changing how we interact and others, like I'm not going to be able to fly, you know, well, MIT will probably figure out how I can fly, but anyway, just kidding. But but you know what I mean? So there are these, these different kinds of constraints on our agency. And so when we're, and, and I think it's very important on my view that the material constraints are very much built into the social constraints. So the buildings, the roads, the forms of transportation and stuff, those, they both are sort of both social and physical constraints that get built in together. Um, and that's really important to, to my account. Um, so I think when you get a social theory, one of the first things you do is start looking at the kinds of choice architectures that we each have what is available to us to choose between and recognize that that has been created, you know, and it isn't inevitable. And it's been created sometimes because we can't imagine thinking about doing something different. And so there's cultural constraints in our imagination and our language. There are these physical constraints because of the transportation systems or the roads or the buildings. And then there are the social norms and expectations. And so you have all of these constraints that social theory can help us locate and question. So critically question which of those constraints are ones that are genuine, genuine constraints in all of our possibilities or whether they're very contingent constraints. And so that's the first thing to do. So that's a way of becoming critical of the structure. And that's also critical of the practices, because the practices are what funnel us into these particular roles and relations. And so once you can have that kind of perspective, then you, you begin to question what is inevitable, what is not inevitable, what is inevitable at this point in history, even though, you know, it it, it wouldn't have been inevitable in another world. Um, and then the next thing, which is, I think, extremely hard and one that I don't, I'm just barely grasping, is to think about when you start tweaking these things in the system, how does it ramify through the system? Right. And something that in a local context may look like a good tweak, it can ramify in ways that there's backlash and it's it interacts with other things in ways that you, you can't really you don't want to happen. And so the next thing is, and, and this is something that um, I've been I'm, I'm in a socialist feminist reading group and we've been talking quite a bit about is is the extent to which the economic dynamics are the dominant dynamics that that are responsible for the way the system works and and or whether they're what are the other dynamics that are involved the other vectors so to speak in the system that make a difference and um of course you know the economic dynamics are are extremely important um but i think there there are there are additional ones, some of the material like climate and climate change and 
the issues of you try and tweak this in a certain way and it's not going to work because you can't live there anymore or you can't survive there anymore or you won't have water, etc. But then there are also cultural dynamics. There's political dynamics. There's historical dynamics. So, for example, talking about race across um, continents, you know, the, the history of race in the United States means that certain things are not going to work that might work in in Germany or might work in other parts of the world. So so trying to get a feel for these multiple dynamics, I think is extremely important as you're thinking about social change. Because I my view is that oftentimes movements have been sort of single issue movements for the feminist movement or the anti-racist movement or the anti-capitalist movement or the post-colonial movements. And you have to see that you, it's very you can't really do it one at a, one thing at a time, because as you try to change one thing, it it kind of cascades in ways that are unpredictable unless you're trying to attend to the multiple factors that are relevant. So that's where theory comes into. Yeah, no, that's very illuminating. I think, and it, it means that theory actually does, or potentially at least, plays a very important role, in fact, in informing movements, which are sometimes not just a single issue, but very much tied to the specific context. And sometimes we see that with the climate movement, I think now sometimes as well, have a very kind of immediate success orientation. And if that success doesn't happen, it's kind of hard for them to persist. Um, and it also seems to suggest that one of the main roles of theory is in a way to, to identify the hurdles and obstacles that social movements run into regularly and to bring them to the attention of um, social movements one might be participating in. Um, what, I mean, what maybe to make it a bit more concrete, this extremely useful and helpful analysis that you gave, I mean, what do you think are some of the hurdles and obstacles that social movements today are facing? I mean, you pointed out, and I think that's correct, that more and more social movements recognize this interconnectedness of the different Problems so that there is a certain convergence, let's say, that the climate movement recognizes that climate issues are social justice issues as well, and that there's a racism plays a big role in this domestically and on the international level, etc. But what are what are some of the problems that you think social movements need to pay more attention to? Some of the obstacles they run into today. Well, one of the big ones I think is trust. That when we're trying to work together and we're differently affected by the structure, trusting other people to care about others and not just themselves in their own group. I think that's that's really hard. And and part because of the history of the splintering of, of different movements, I think this issue of trust is huge in working together. I think another huge hurdle is money because the people who have the money get to control a lot of the the space the the space for hearing and seeing and and what what counts and what matters they control the media you know they control television and popular culture and you know all of this and um it's very hard to reach people uh sometimes because they're so bombarded with you know what's been they're being fed um uh, that's a that's a huge problem, and this is connected to the issues of misinformation, where people are not critically trained to sort of doubt what 
is fed them. Um, these are old issues. I think the trust is one that's also been all the misinformation and media and and money. Um, people who who have money, they can have big conferences in Davos or whatever and figure out how they're going to rule the world. You know, and it's it's very difficult to bring together people from different constituencies and continents and places to organize. And often organizing has to happen in person. I I, I think that I do work virtually, but I think having people together around a table or in a room is is really important in in building a, a movement. Um, and it's very hard to find the money to bring people together in that kind of way. But I also think religion is very meaningful to a lot of people, and you know, the, to find to build trusting relationships across religious differences and cultural differences and sex differences and race differences and class differences and ethnic differences, all of these. Um, I think that it's it's just very, very, very hard uh, to do. And it's very hard to do when you can't do it in person, you know, in a in a way that... I don't know. I think part of it, maybe for me, now that I'm thinking about it, is that I think a lot of the the trust building and the coalition building, it needs to happen at a kind of an individual or small group level. But what we want is kind of massive change. And so it's, it's something just feels out of sync to me of... We're, how are we going to have these big, broad changes that are in the interests of this coalition um, when you can't create that coalition in a way that is is has solidarity you know, without the trust that is built at the very at the very grassroots level, at a very basic level? And I, I just don't I don't know how. I just yeah, that sounds like the challenge of the moment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, since since you mentioned solidarity, and you also mentioned uh, the idea of being a good ally when you were talking about your relation to the black communities and black activism, uh, let's say the classical idea of solidarity is we are facing the same destiny, so we have to act on it. And one of the problems of the left seems to be that the the awareness that the situation is so different for each of us. Totally. Really, in concrete ways, facing the reality of your own economic privilege, for example, it, it's not easy to do because our world is, we're so protected, those of us who have economic privilege, we're so protected. And to love people and be close to people who don't have that economic privilege and watch their lives, how they don't have... They don't have medical, see, this is in the US, they don't have medical care, right? And or they don't have legal representation. And you 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 can't just give it to them. I mean, there's not like I can wave a magic wand and sort of say, here, here now you have medical care and legal representation, or whatever like that. Or or the most basic things. It's really deeply horrifying what many people are are having to endure. Um And building they're building bridges, coalitions and, and solidarity across that is very difficult to do, in part because they're just trying to survive. Um, and yeah, the, the academics and the privileged of us 
it's 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 hard to to build those those bridges effectively isn't the necessary first step in a way to realize that you cannot really have a sustainable social political order if you don't address these issues as a shared concern or as a shared challenge um just like you know let's say in the face of climate crisis of course you can fantasize about building a bunker or moving to a plot of land in New Zealand or to Mars. But I mean, it's also at the same time clear that this can really only be a fantasy solution because how long will you be in the bunker before you need someone to fix the ventilation you know, or to bring food or whatever it is? You know, I mean, you can't out of the shared world we live in and all these illusions of opting out have to come to an end in a way if you want to, you know, come to an adequate reaction to the crisis. Right, but the worry that is if you're wanting to work with and not for the community. The, I mean, I think you need all of it. You need to work for the community. You need to work with the community and you need to let empower the community to work for itself, right? So there's all of these dimensions of it. But what I was thinking, solidarity requires a kind of connectedness, a fabric that connects us. And part of the job of the theorist and the activist is to build that that connectedness and and if you can't and and I was just emphasizing the ways in which you building that connectedness with people who are just struggling to stay alive is very hard to do it's just and so I think what you do is you go through local community organizations and you and you find ways of building the community organizations and being present in a process where there's a two-way sort of engagement on the strategies that are going to work to really address, you know, the, the, the most immediate problems. And so this is something we need to do more of. Well, maybe that's even a good final word, I guess, or concluding word for the time being, a good end, which is not too pessimistic, but also doesn't, you know, diminish the challenge. I don't know, Rahe, what do you think? No, it's it's wonderful. I mean, it was really, really wonderful and, and a very good level, I think, on which we addressed these issues and it's going to... Thank you. Best wishes and many thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much. It'll be intense. Bye, everybody. Bye. This was Critical Theory in Context introducing this year's Benjamin Chair's Sally Hesslinger, with a conversation about the relationship between practical activist engagements and theoretical reflections. Under the title, Agents of Possibility, the Complexity of Social Change, Sally will be delivering three consecutive lectures taking place from June 14th to 16th this year, 2023. All of these lectures will be taking place at the Staatsbibliothek zu Berlin with limited capacities. Mark the dates already in your calendars and be there early for the evenings. To stay up to date on all events of the Center for Social Critique in Berlin, subscribe to our newsletter on our website at www.criticaltheoryinberlin.de. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast on any of the well-known platforms. My name is Rahel Yegi. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you will join us again next time. Take care and bye for now.